Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Last week, we began to look at the fourth and final vision Daniel received in chapter 10, where we were given a glimpse into the very real warfare that rages in the heavenly realm, where the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places seek to cause chaos by resisting the work of God and his angels. In Daniel's case, as he began to seek God in prayer, the Lord immediately answered, sending Archangel Gabriel to give Daniel understanding of the vision that God had communicated. However, Daniel was delayed by demonic opposition for 21 days until the archangel Michael came to his aid and enabled him to break through. Finally, Gabriel was able to tell Daniel what the vision was about and that it detailed what would happen to his people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Before we get into chapter 11, I want to remind you that at the beginning of our study, I mentioned that biblical prophecy is often like a mountain range. When you look at a mountain range, it appears to be one solitary thing. However, as you inspect it more closely, you begin to see that there are peaks in the foreground that are actually separated from the mountains behind them by great valleys. Biblical prophecy is often similar. A vision may have the appearance of all being one thing to be fulfilled in one moment, and yet it usually applies in part to the times in which it is spoken, in part to times soon to come, and often there is an even more future fulfillment to it as well, as we will see as the case in Daniel's vision. Daniel chapter 11 is quite long, but actually it divides into two sections according to this mountain range perspective of fulfillment. Daniel chapter 11 verses 1 through 35 describes what would happen to the Jews over the next 370 years or so from the time Daniel received the vision, while verse 36 onward applies to what will transpire for Daniel's people, the Jews, in the future at a time yet to come. Today, we're going to look at only the first element, the things that would happen to Daniel's people in the more immediate future. That immediate future is what is known as the intertestamental period. When we read our Bibles, we get to the last book of the Old Testament called Malachi, and with the flip of a single page, we begin the New Testament, often without realizing that there were approximately 400 years that passed between the end of the Old Testament writings and the beginning of the New. During the period between the Testaments, Though God was at work, he was silent. No prophets spoke, no books relating to the main text of the Bible or the canon of Scripture as it is known were written during that time. However, we do know a lot about the history of that period. It's well documented by many ancient historians and interestingly, it correlates in great detail to Daniel's prophecy here in the 11th chapter of his book. And as we look today at the 
battles that played out upon the earth between the different kings and kingdoms, I don't want us to forget Gabriel's message to Daniel that they are the result of the war being waged in the heavens between God's forces and those of Satan. This is our true perspective of the history that we're going to see today. You will remember that last week we read ahead into the first verses of chapter 11. They reminded us that the distribution of Alexander the Great's empire was not going to be easy and there would be chaos as his four generals struggled for power. Eventually, two of those generals became more powerful than the others. One of them, a man by the name of Ptolemy, took an area to the south of Israel that included Egypt. And because the kings of that region all descended from him, it became known as the Empire of the Ptolemies. Interestingly, their rulers were all called Ptolemy and all of the rulers' wives were known as Cleopatra. They ruled until the Romans conquered Egypt in 30 BC. Another general with the name Seleucus was at first a commander under Ptolemy, but he grew even stronger and took the area to the north of Israel that included Syria. His descendants became known as the Seleucids and they ruled in the north until the Romans conquered them around 63 BC. So these two generals actually founded two dynasties who ruled for hundreds of years in their respective areas. They were deeply hostile toward each other, always battling back and forth for supremacy, and Israel was caught in the middle of their struggles, both geographically and culturally. In our passage for study in this lesson, the focus has shifted from Alexander the Great to the Ptolemaic rule of Egypt, the king of the south. Let's pick up in verse 5 then with what God said would happen. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. We know from history this was indeed fulfilled with stunning accuracy. At first, when Ptolemy took the southern region to rule from Egypt, Seleucus had been one of his subjects and and though he ruled the northern territory of Syria, he was more like one of Ptolemy's commanders than a king in his own right. For at first, he was totally dependent on the king of Egypt for his authority. Over time, however, the Seleucid kingdom of Syria became more powerful, with its kings overtaking the kings of the south as the dominant authority in the region. This created a problem for the southern kingdom, and so a marriage alliance was proposed to unite their two kingdoms and strengthen their alliance. 
The king of the south's daughter, Princess Berenice, was married to the king of the north, and a child was born. There was one small problem with this plan, however, as the northern king already had a wife, a woman by the name of Laodice, whom he chose to divorce in order to marry the southern princess. It was not long before the king of the north died suddenly, very likely poisoned by his ex-wife. Almost immediately afterward, Berenice and her child were both murdered in 246 BC. And Laodice quickly placed her son, Seleucus II Callinicus, on the throne. Instead of sealing an alliance, this ill-fated marriage started a war because upon hearing this news, a member of Berenice's family chose to ride out to avenge her death. Daniel's vision describes this in verse 7. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the fortresses of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. It was Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, who sought revenge. He rode north with his army and attacked Seleucus II, seizing his fortresses. He also made sure to kill Laodice before returning to Egypt with many slaves and much treasure. The king of the north, humiliated at the death of his mother, sought revenge on Egypt, but he was unsuccessful as we see prophesied in verse 9. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. The prophecy forewarns that the king of the north would not succeed in his endeavor and that he would be forced to retreat. In fulfillment of the vision after returning to his own country, Seleucus II Callinicus took a fall from his horse and died, and the Seleucid throne passed to his brother Antiochus III, who was only 18 years old at the time. The date was 223 BC and he ruled for 36 years until 187 BC. Imagining himself to be like Alexander the Great, Antiochus III chose to be known as Antiochus the Great, and not surprisingly, it was his hope to reunite the old empire and to rule over it as Alexander had. He assembled a great army in the hopes of retaliating against the south to increase his empire, but for all the strife he caused, he was unsuccessful. Apparently, the battle in the heavens would continue to rage back and forth, for God foretold that it would not be long before the king of the south would assemble his forces again. Verse 11, Then the king of the south will march out in rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, and 
yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army, fully equipped. When this vision was fulfilled, the king of the south would be Ptolemy IV, Philopater, and history tells us that he did march out to fight against Antiochus the Great and his considerable army. Ptolemy IV, Philopater, was victorious and slaughtered about 20% of the northern army, but for all his pride, just as God had promised, his victory was short-lived, for Antiochus the Great was quickly able to muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he returned to attack the king of the south, and this time he had with him reinforcements from a very unexpected source. Verse 14. In those times many will arise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision but without success. Remember that God is speaking to Daniel in this vision particularly about the Jews and now he has something to say about Daniel's own people and the part that they would play in this ongoing battle. The Ptolemies, or the kings of the south, had ruled over Judea for some time, and some Jews who had become desperate to throw off their oppressors actually joined Antiochus the Great in his quest against the king of the south. However, according to God's warning, the Jewish people in this case would not be successful, and in fact, much of their own land would end up in the hands of the king of the north, Antiochus the Great. Verse 15. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Jerusalem, the fortified city mentioned here, had Egyptian or southern troops stationed within its walls, and consequently Antiochus the Great laid siege to the city, capturing it as he advanced. No one was able to stand against him. Egypt would be conquered. Unfortunately, the Jews also didn't have the power to resist him, and Antiochus the Great overpowered them. He conquered them and also established his own rule in the beautiful land. Verse 17. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. 
Exactly as Daniel's vision had specified, Antiochus the Great grew tired of war and so decided to try to gain control of the region through intrigue. He made an alliance with Ptolemy V, who was then the king of Egypt, and as was the custom, this treaty would again be sealed by a marriage union. Antiochus the Great pledged his daughter to be married to the king of the south in 193 BC. The plan, however, was not to truly cement an alliance, but rather to destabilize the king of the south, for Antiochus's daughter was supposed to be a secret agent for her father. However, after the marriage, she sided with her new husband instead and betrayed her father. Though frustrated in his plans, Antiochus the Great still had not abandoned his dream of being the next Alexander the Great. He realized that Egypt was not the only land that Alexander had ruled. And so, as foretold by God, he turned his attention in a different direction and attacked a number of Greek islands and part of Asia Minor. By this time, though, the Romans were rising in power in the region and they would not tolerate his audacity. They demanded that he stay out of Greece and when he ignored their warning, they attacked and defeated him. Not only were they able to turn him back to his own country, but in 188 BC, Antiochus the Great fell from his horse. Struggling to his feet, he stumbled and fell dead to be seen no more in accordance with the word of God. In verse 20, God went on to reveal that his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Antiochus's son took the throne in 187 BC, but he did not rule for long. He imposed heavy taxes upon his people, which he paid directly to Rome to keep them from attacking his kingdom. He was not popular for that, and he soon died, not in anger or in battle, but very quietly. He was poisoned. Upon his death, Antiochus IV Epiphanes took the throne. He was the small horn mentioned in Daniel chapter 8 verse 9, the earthly ruler who is the foreshadowing of the end-time Antichrist. God warned Daniel in verse 21 about the rise of this contemptible ruler, saying, He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. This contemptible or hated person is Antiochus Epiphanes, the most wicked and brutal king ever to rule the kingdom of the north. Previously, we learned he gave himself the name Epiphanes, meaning splendid manifestation, because he believed himself to be God. He was hated by his own people, and secretly they changed his name. Instead of referring to him as Epiphanes, they used a different word, Epimanes, which meant madman. Antiochus Epiphanes had no legal right to the throne, but he seized it from the rightful heir through clever scheming. In fact, his entire reign was a tangle of plots and deception. Look at verse 22. 
Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. Let's look at that part of the prophecy in more detail. We cannot be certain, but it seems that Antiochus Epiphanes likely turned away an invasion by Egypt, whose army was swept away before him. In verse 22, we are cautioned that he would also destroy a prince of the covenant. The high priest of the temple in Jerusalem would have been referred to as a prince of the covenant. And we do know that Antiochus Epiphanes was behind the murder of the high priest in Jerusalem so that he could replace him with a Greek sympathizer. Just as revealed in verse 23, Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power with the help of only a small group of people, and he made sure that they were all well rewarded. Like many dictators today, he stole from the people to give to his associates. The prophecy goes on to describe his actions, saying in verse 25, With a large army he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. Antiochus Epiphanes moved against Egypt in 170 BC, and although the king of Egypt raised a large and very powerful army, he was not able to resist him. The Egyptian army was swept away, and it seems that somehow intrigue was involved in their defeat, where many died in battle. Everything this evil ruler did seemed to prosper. However, God had promised it would last only for a time. Look at verse 27. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. Both Antiochus Epiphanes and the king of the south sat down at the negotiating table together. Neither king was honourable in the negotiations. However, the inexperienced king of Egypt relied on advisers who did not have his best interest at heart. And as a result, the king of the south lost power because of the talks. Antiochus victoriously left Egypt for Syria. On his way home, his intense hatred for the Jews caused him to loot the temple in Jerusalem. No doubt, prompted by Satan, it was then that he defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. According to Daniel's vision, it would not be his last clash with the southern kingdom or with the Jews. Verse 29. 
At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Two years later, in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes began to march his army down toward Egypt yet again. But this time he was met by Roman forces who came in ships from the west to demand that he not attack Egypt. Antiochus Epiphanes knew that he could not successfully take on Rome and so he surrendered. Humiliated and angry, he returned home, but along the way he took turned in rage towards Jerusalem and did much damage there. As we've previously discussed, as a foreshadowing of the end-time Antichrist, this evil king, Antiochus Epiphanes, defiled the temple of God yet again. Not only by preventing the Jewish sacrifices from being offered, but from that time on, he compelled the Jews to sacrifice a pig on the 25th day of each month, because he'd been born on the 25th day. He promised the Jews great reward if they would forsake the Holy Covenant to follow him instead of the true and living God. Perhaps it is not surprising that he did have some takers. Verse 32. With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Some Jews who were already wicked were corrupted by his flattery, but according to the prophecy, true believers, those Jews who knew their God, would resist him. And it was then in 167 BC that the Maccabean revolt began. As foretold in verse 33, it would not be easy for those who resisted. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. We know that Antiochus Epiphanes brought severe suffering and even death on many of the Jews. But God seems to tell Daniel that this persecution, even the martyrdom of some of his people, would ultimately be used by God for great good. It would refine and purify them as they learned that faithfulness to God is what really matters in life. The Lord also revealed to Daniel here this would not be the absolute fulfillment of the prophecy because it was still for the time of the end and it would come at the appointed time. 
In our next lesson, we'll look at that time of the end and the political leader who rises to power in those days before the second coming of Christ. I can't help but think, though, how heavy Daniel's heart must have been as he heard these prophecies about his people. And certainly, we all feel very solemn about the truths we see here, especially about the battle raging in the unseen realms and what it looks like on earth for us today. But I want to close by looking at some encouragement given to Elisha's servant in 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 15 to 17. Elisha and his servant were under siege by enemies sent to capture them, and there seemed no way out. But in verse 15 we're told, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God's army was there to protect his people then, and we can trust that God and his heavenly army are fighting on our behalf today to truly see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have a plan for the ages, and just at the exact time that you have decreed, things will come to be. Lord, we just praise you that Daniel was one of those who knew his God and who stood for you in his time. Lord, let us be found in the same way, standing firm for Jesus until the end. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.